0: This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday, shiur in the Megilat. And now, Dr. Yael Ziegler, who will be giving the shiur in Megilat. Shalom, and welcome back to the sixth shiur in the series on Migilat Route. Root. As those of you who have been following the Shurim know, I had originally conceived of this series to be a five-part series. However, in preparation for Shavuot, I began to develop certain ideas which I felt cohered very nicely with some of the things that we've been speaking about in this series. And so I've added on one final shiur to this series. Uh, For those of you who have been following, we've been discussing how Megillat Rut fits into the larger framework of the Tanakh. Um, And today's shiur will be no exception. Um, what I'd like to discuss today, or to continue to discuss today, is the manner in which Migilat Rut meets Sefer Shoftim. We discussed this, I believe, in our second shiur. The, the idea, of course, being that Migilat Rut takes place during the period of Sefer Shoftim. Migilat Rut, of course, begins with the words, Rehi bimei shoftim. Um, what I proposed in that second shiur is that Migilat Rut doesn't appear in the book of Sefer Shoftim, Partially because, if not primarily because, it is such a different kind of book. It is, uh, it is a book of of, uh, of kindness, it is a book of good relationships, and ultimately, of course, it serves as the solution for Sefer Shoftim. It brings us to the situation of order and stability, which is, of course, brought about by the Malchut. Megidah brings us to the Malchut, while Sefer Shoftim leads us away from the Malchut. Bayamim haheim, en melech b'Yisrael, yaseh. Today, I would like specifically to relate to this, the final story of uh, Shofate in Sefer Shoftim, and that is, of course, the story of Shimshon. Um, the story of Shimshon, of course, appears at the very end of a terrible deterioration, a deterioration in the quality of leadership of the judges, a deterioration in the religious integrity of the people, which I believe is also reflected in the religious deterioration of the judges themselves, a deterioration in the social framework of the nation at the time. Um, And all this really, I think, Uh, immediately prior to the story of Shimshon is very strongly felt. After the story of Iftach, what we have is terrible social chaos, including the story of 42,000 dead people from Shevet Ephraim, terrible religious decay, which is perhaps most succinctly indicated in the 10th parak of Sefer Shoftim, where God declares that he has finished saving the people, that he saved them over and over, from all of their enemies, and every time they simply betrayed him and went back to their idolatrous practices once he had saved them, and he says go and cry out to those gods that you keep choosing. I am done saving you and so there 's a certain um, a certain A certain alienation now between God and his people. And there's also a new and encroaching military threat at the beginning of chapter 13, right before we meet Shimshon. And that is, of course, the encroaching migrant plishtim who are fiercely searching for a new homeland. So we have this sense that things have really deteriorated socially. Religiously and militarily, and suddenly, out of the darkness, as the nation seems to be plunging deeper and deeper into the abyss, an angel of God appears in chapter thirteen to a barren woman, promising her a miracle child who will serve both as military leader and image, and an image of a pious leader who actually has this external image of piety because he is in fact a Nazirite. Now, this leader, of course, we have tremendously high hopes for him. He is potentially capable of succeeding militarily against this extremely formidable new threat of the plishtim. Of course, the plishtim are somewhat different than some of the other enemies that they have, such as Ammon and Moab, who already have a land of their own. As I noted, the plishtim are searching for a new homeland, and so that makes them a particularly formidable enemy. Uh, we also know from external sources, from example, for example, from Egyptian sources, that the plishtim were well known as fierce and frightening um, enemies... Um, and so along comes Shimshon, who promises, uh, or seems to be at least promising in his ability to save them from this encroaching military threat, and also perhaps is promising socially and religiously. This is a person who, in theory, could reunite the people. He has strength. He has perhaps inner strength as well. Certainly externally, um, he... He appears to be in the role of someone who, uh, who, who could restore them religiously because he has this external appearance of a Nazarite. Now, this, all this hopefulness is surprising to some extent because it comes at the end or towards the end of Sefer Shoftim. Um, and and yet we seem to have this sense that Shimshon is our last hope. The reason that we have that sense is because he is in fact the last shofet. Um, and of course, the problem with the story is that when viewed within the context of safer shoftim, we see that Shimshon didn't really work. What happens after his story is that um, we're plunged further into the abyss. We are left without any leader at all. There is no leader after Shimshon. There's no Shofet after Shimshon. And instead what we're told is in these days there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We have total social chaos. We have uh, no direction, rampant confusion, religious disorder, social disorder, Idols, corruption, inhospitality, rape, betrayal, and, of course, a terrible civil war that threatens to... Um, destroy the entire tribe of Benjamin, thereby decimating the very fabric of Am Yisrael, which is built upon these twelve tribes. The other thing that we know is is that when we next meet the Plishtim, they are once again in a position of strength. They're once again in a position of power. We're next going to meet them in the fourth chapter of Shmuel Aleph, where we're going to see that they are going to um, they're going to be victorious in a battle against Am Yisrael, and they're going to um, even be to destroy Shiloh and capture the Aron, um, uh, the Aron that, that, uh, the- the nation, the Jewish nation, had taken into battle. Uh, The next time we meet the plishtim in Shmuel Aleph, Perak Yud, we're going to find that they've penetrated into the very heartland of Israel. They're going to be situated on Giv'at Binyamin. This is very problematic that the plishtim have encroached into the heartland of Israel, into what we call Nachalat Hashchina, the area in which the Mishkan wanders, the area that is really very much ensconced by other tribes. Don't forget, Shevet Binyamin has has no external border, and it is surrounded by strong tribes who are designed to protect her and to make sure that Nahalat Tashchina is not penetrated by, um, by by enemy invaders. So the fact that the Plishtim in Perak Yud in Shmuel Aleph have made their way into Shevet Binyamin suggests that whatever it is that Shimshon ac- accomplishes, it's not terribly successful. I want to ask the question, what went wrong? Who was Shimshon supposed to be? what happened? Why, why is he not able to be what he is supposed to be? And of course, what is the solution to the failure of Shimshon? And, if, and, and you know, I'll begin by saying that obviously our direction is to try to suggest that Megillat Rut also provides a solution for the failure of Shimshon. Now, in order to understand this, I, I think we have to begin with Shimshon's tribe, which is the tribe of Dan. Dan is a leadership tribe. He is the leader of the maidservants in the placement around the Mishkan. Of course, we know there are four Machanot around the Mishkan, each of which had a leader, and he led both his own tribe and two other tribes. So, Yehuda is on the east, and he leads Issachar and Zivulun, and Ephraim is the leader on the west, and he is the leader of the camp that includes Minasheh and Bin Yamin. Dan is the leader of the camp of the maidservants, which is situated on the north side of the Mishkan, and he is the leader also of Asher Shepard. And Naphtali, God, the other son of the maidservant, is placed with uh, Reuven, who is the leader both of God and Shimon, and that's in the south. We're not, we're not going to talk about that right now, but I do want to suggest that the very fact that Dan is in a leadership, in a leadership position around the Mishkan, we have Degel Machane Dan, uh, the the flag of the camp of is is called the camp of Dan, suggests that Dan is has some qualities of leadership. Now most of us recall Dan's image as a snake, which is mentioned in Yaakov's blessing. But what I would like to uh, to point out is that in Moshe's blessing to each of the tribes, in Devarim, Perak Lamid Gimel, Dan is described not as a snake, alei darach. Not as a nachash, alei darach. But rather as a gor arye, rather as a lion cub. In this way, of course, he is the mirror image of the tribe of Yehuda. Yehuda is also called a gor arye in Yaakov's blessing in Bereshit, parak memtet in the forty ninth chapter of Bereshit. Yaakov. Calls Dan a snake, and he calls Yehuda a lion or a lion cub, and yet Moshe describes Dan as being a gur arye. And in many ways, what I'd like to um, develop here is that. Dan and Yuda are mere images of each other. They have many similarities, many similarities in terms of their personality, uh, which seems to somehow be encapsulated by their description as a lion cub. They have strength. They have power, the power of a lion. They are strong, fierce, frightening, passionate, Perhaps even unbridled, absolutely courageous. Uh, they they have you know no qualms about about um, forging forward into battle, and of course a lion has leadership capabilities. Now um, this I think finds expression in many different ways, both in Chazal and in the text. I'll mention several of them right now. One point I think that has to be made is the travels in the Midbar. Right when they travel in the Midbar, they don't travel in a square. They travel in a line. Yehuda at the front, he's the first camp, the second camp is Reuven, Right in the middle is the Mishkan. Just like in Eretz Israel, the Mishkan is surrounded by tribes and is not placed on any sort of border. Um, Unlike, of course, ancient Near Eastern cultures at the time, which do um, largely place their place of worship on the border in order to protect their external borders. Um, Our Mishkan is placed ensconced in the heartland of Israel and is protected by stronger tribes, as I mentioned before. This is true also in the travels of the in the midbar the Mishkan and the Levi'im camp third, or they travel third. The fourth um, uh, camp that travels is Ephraim. And the last camp, the camp that travels in the back is Dan. In fact, there's even a special word for Dan's role. He is called the Me'asef. The Me'asef is the gatherer. The one who is at the back. This is, of course, a very vulnerable point. He is the one who is responsible, not just for his own tribes who travel at the back. In other words, he's really taking up the rear. He is the one who might be attacked in the back, and the Therefore, has to protect the uh, the 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 um, back flank of Am Israel, but also I would imagine he is responsible for the weaker elements, those who fall back in the travels, the old, the sick, the young, perhaps even what the Tanakh calls kol hanecha shalim acharecha, and this is of course a description of the manner in which Amalek. Um, Uh, attacks Am Yisrael he cuts off all of those who Rashi and Ibn Ezra both say the weak ones who are in the back Um, indeed in that story Amalek attacks from behind and apparently it is Dan who is placed very carefully to be the line of defense for the uh, flank of Am Yisrael now um, this suggests that both Yehuda and Dan are in very powerful powerful, protective positions in the travel. The front, of course, requires a courageous and energetic leader, ready to forge new paths, ready to lead the nation to surge forward. But also the back, as we noted, is in a very vulnerable place. Now, the Nachalot in Eretz Yisrael, the placement of the tribes in Eretz Yisrael, which seems to mirror the encampment around the Mishkan, also accords a special role to Dan in conjunction with the role of Yehuda. It seems to be, and Rashi um, points this out in his comment in Devarim Perak Lamed Gimel that Dan has two potential nachalot in Eretz Israel. The one that we are very familiar with, the one that seems to be developed in Sefer Yahushua, is the one where, in which he shares a border with Yehuda, and Dan and Yehuda both border the Philistine area. They are both charged with, um, conquering part of the Philistine cities. Of course, we know that, um, uh, this area, the coastal area, is the area in which the plishtim enter, and Dan and Yehuda, who are placed there in the Shvila, in what today is the Beit Shemesh area, in fact, Dan and Yehuda seem to share Beit Shemesh, that area is a buffer zone between the plishtim and Shevet Binyamin, and the Nachalat of the Beit HaMikdash. and of course, once again, we see that Dan and Yehuda are placed in a very vulnerable spot for Am Yisrael. They are charged with the task of protecting Am Yisrael from the fierce fighters, the unbridled warriors known as the Philistines. Um, now, the um, the fact that Dan does not seem to quite conquer his land, or certainly doesn't conquer all of his land, and eventually goes up north, where he's able to join his brethren, his fellow uh, maidservants, with whom he had encamped around the Mishkan, Asher and Naphtali, the fact that he goes up there may suggest, he goes up to Laish, right, and he conquers that northern area in Shoftim, Perak Yudchet, this may suggest a failure. On Dan's part, he gives up his honored place near the Nachala of the Shekhinah, his honored role of protecting Nachalat Binyamin, And instead, he joins his brother up north, very, very far away from the Beit HaMikdash. Of course, that means that he is in one of the first tribes, perhaps even the first tribe, to go into exile. And of course, he takes himself to the periphery of Amisrael. However, as Rashi points out in his reading of Dvarim, Perak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Kafbet, Dan is described not just as a Goraye, but as Yizanek, min Habashan, someone who pounces from the Bashan. The Bashan, of course, is the northern area, and there Dan also seems to have an important role. In fact, Rashi says, Dan had two Nachalot. One Nachalot was on the border with the Philistines, and that again puts him in the role of protecting the flank or protecting the vulnerable areas. On the other hand, there's another vulnerable area, and that is the northernmost place in the land of Israel, we know, the northern border is the place that seems to be most vulnerable. Once again, Yehuda is on one border and Dan is on the other. Yehudah is the southern border, Dan becomes the northern border, and this again mirrors the manner in which they traveled in the Midbar. There does seem to be a sense that Dan has two ideal places in Eretz Israel, both of which place him in the role as the Me'asef, alongside Yehuda as a courageous, protective leader who is ready to protect his people. Now, uh, the Midrash draws a tremendous amount of similarities between these two tribes, and so the Midrash is well aware of this, of this comparison, as is always the case with the Midrash, but actually before I get to the Midrash, I just want to mention that it's interesting that the book of Shoftim also seems to somehow uh, describe this setup in which the first Shofet, the one who is meant to lead the people and to forge the new path in the period of the Shoftim, is of course from Shevet Yehudah. We mentioned even that the very first sukim of Sefer Shoftim, uh, the people turn to God and say, who's going to lead us into battle? And God says, "Yehudayah Ya'aleh. And in fact, it is appropriate that the first Shofet in Sefer uh, Shoftim is Otniel ben Kenaz, who is from the tribe of Yehudah. For whatever reason, and we mentioned this in pre- previous Shirim, Yehuda is unsuccessful at setting up leadership in Sefer Shoftim. This is one of the, um, one of the ways in which we really see the deterioration of Sefer Shoftim is in the fact that Yehuda does not properly lead, and this leads, of course, to a deterioration in leadership. Finally, however, the last leader in Sefer Shoftim is done. Dan is the me'asef. He is the gatherer. He is the one who is meant to, uh, give support to all of those who, uh, Yehuda was not able to protect the ones who fall to the back, the weak, the vulnerable. Also in Sefer Shoftim, the leaders are framed by Yehuda and Dan. Yehuda in the front, Dan in the back. Now, the way in which the Midrash often compares Yehuda and Dan, is in the context of the Mishkan. In fact, there's a Midrash that says that despite the fact that Dan was from the maidservants and therefore is not a particularly respected tribe, uh, he becomes the partner of Yehuda in the building of the Mishkan. And the proof that the Midrash brings is from Shmot Perak Lamed Aleph, in which the two men who are called to, by Moshe to come and uh, be involved in the making of the Mishkan, in the actual building of of the Mishkan, is Bitzalel from the tribe of Yehuda and Aholiyav from the tribe of Dan. And the Midrash says this is also true in the time of the Mikdash, because the building of the Mikdash was done by Shlomo, the king from the tribe of Yehudah, and a Man from the tribe whose mother was from the tribe of Dan, and this seems to be based on a pasuk in Divraya Yamin bet Perakabet. In any case, what Chazal seemed to be suggesting here is that Dan and Yehuda are not just leaders in terms of their um, in terms of their physical military strength, but they are also responsible for the warp and the woof of the Mishkan. Their strength, their passion, their leadership, and their abilities constitute the very fabric of the Mishkan. Um, Now, the similarities between these these tribes may best be seen in individuals who come from these tribes. And, of course, when we talk about Shevet Yudah, the first person that springs to mind the dominant figure from Shevet Yudah is, of course, David, Well, when we talk about Dan, it is, of course, Shimshon. And the similarities between these men are astounding. These men fight lions barehanded. That is, of course, because they are Gwur Arye, but it is also because they are designated to fight the plishtim. This is, this is Shimshon's role. This is David's role. This is what propels David forward to greatness is his ability to fight the plishtim and his lack of fear as he fights the plishtim. And of course, recall that we mentioned that the tribe of Yehudan, the tribe of Dan, are on the border with the plishtim because this is the tribal role as well as the role of individuals. Both Shimshon and David use unconventional weapons. They don't travel with a sword. This is a reflection of their strength. This is a reflection of their courage, of their uh, confidence. They grab whatever is nearest, a jawbone, a fox, a stick, a bunch of smooth stones from the wadi. This assists them in their spontaneous outrage. They don't fear they don't hesitate. And this personality trait is dominant both in Shimshon and in David. Nevertheless, I want to say uh, something that is very true throughout the Tanakh, and that is that any personality trait has potential for good and potential for bad. The same passion, the same strength uh, can be used for God and for leading the people, or it can be used for women. And of course, that is the story of the weakness both of Shimshon and of of David. Shimshon and the story of the three women in his life, David and Bathsheba, this is... The weak point. Well, I would say that one major difference between David and Shimshon is that David, when we think of David's passion, when we think of David's strength, when we think of his of his uh, character, we recognize that most of the stories describe the manner in which he uses his passion for God and for serving the people. Right? If you think of his. Outrage in the first story in which we really get to know him, which is not the story in Shmuel Aleph Tetzayin, where he begins to serve Shaul, where we don't really get to know him very well, but the story in Shmuel Aleph Perak Yud Zayin, where he fights Goliath. There, we what the first thing we see about David is that he is so outraged by Goliath's words. Who is this? uncircumcised Philistine that has dared to shame um to shame God, to shame the camps of the living God. He is so outraged that he can't help himself. He just boils over with with um, with, with anger and with passion, and so he goes to fight Goliath. Um, perhaps also the scene of his ecstatic dancing before God. Despite Michal, his wife's uh, embarrassment and indignation, how can a king act in this way? What we see there is David's great passion, for God, um, now I, I would venture to say that Shimshon also has a good moment in in his career when he's able to channel his passion that we've seen. Really, from the beginning of his career, his passion is really um, directed at women. Um, but at the end of of this first story, where there's a series of acts of pers- personal vengeance and fiascos between Shimshon and the Philistine women and the Philistines be- over the cause of these women, Shimshon fights a battle in which he becomes very thirsty. Now, of course, thirsty is a metaphor in Tanakh, right? God is water; he is the Be'er Maim Chaim, and someone who is Thirsty is someone who is alienated from God. Shimshon feels on the brink of death. And of course, at this moment, finally, V'yikra'el uh, At first it tells us, V'yitzma me'od, V'yikra'el He becomes very thirsty. He calls out to God. And at this point, God gives him water. V'yisht, and he drinks. Vatasho rucho, and his spirit is restored. V'yechi, and he is Revived. Now this is certainly a spiritual description, and then we're told, by that he judges Yisrael at this time, during the time of the Plishtim, for 20 years. And so, Shemshon is given another choice, because he's our last hope, perhaps, because of the sensitive juncture of the story in the period of, of Shoftim, because of his extraordinary strength and his abilities as, both as a Nazarite and as a, a, a leader, God gives him another chance. God gives him another chance to turn around the trajectory of Sefer Shoftim and to lead us perhaps to a point of stability and order which will enable us once again to lead the people in a positive way. Now, um, here we're told in the story of Shemshon that after this good moment, he rules Amisrael for 20 years. What is 20 years? 20 years is a midpoint in someone's career. right? Most people are supposed to rule for 40 years. That's uh, the appropriate time that's that suggests a full generation, a full career. David rules for 40 years. Shlomo rules for 40 years. Many of the Shoftim rule for 40 years. And so 20 years is a midpoint, right? If the first half of, of a person's career is spent building up his relationship and his trust with his constituents, at the midpoint this is the moment when he should begin to implement his goals, his ambitions, his ideals as leader. Uh, this is perhaps what we see with Shmuel in Parakzayan of Shmuel Aleph, where we have some uh, mention of 20 years. The Mefarshim have a hard time with the question of what has happened for 20 years. Has it been that the Aron has been in Kiryat Yairim for 20 years? Is it 20 years since the war with the Plishtim? I would like to suggest that Shmuel Aleph, Parakzayan, Pasuk Aleph, describes 20 years in Shmuel's rule, uh, that is, in his career, that is the midpoint of his career. What does Shmuel do at the midpoint of his career? He enacts a great ceremony of tshuva. He perhaps spent 20 years building up his relationship with the people, leading the people gently back to the path of God. And at 20 years, he gathers all the people together and he says, now's the moment to <clears throat> to implement everything that I have tried to accomplish until now. Hasiru et Get rid of those idols. If you really want to go back to God with all of your heart, let's enact this ceremony of tshuva. That's shmuel at 20 years. What about shimshon? What does shimshon do at 20 years? Well, right after we're told, we're told, he goes to a prostitute at this turning point, at this moment when he's judged the people for 20 years, he leaves it all behind. Instead of using his passion to surge forward and together with the people to forge a new path at this critical juncture in Jewish history. Instead, he, he gives it all up. He uses his passions for a woman, an anonymous Prishti, prostitute, this is Shimshon's failure, um, and this really is is why, after this story, there is no great success as a result of Shimshon, no military success, no leadership success, no religious success, no real societal success. I mean, look at what happens after Shimshon's rule. We are simply plunged into a terrible period, perhaps the darkest period of Amishra'l's history. Um, now, I mean, this having been said, I think that it's important to mention once again that Shimshon could have been David Amelech, right? Shimshon had all of the qualities to be David. He could have been the one to turn around the period of the Shoftim. In fact, the Midrash recognizes this, recognizes this as well. An interesting Bereshit Rabbah which tells us that Yaakov Avinu saw the future and he saw in Ruach HaKodesh, he saw Shimshon and he thought that Shimshon was Mashiach and he got very excited and then he fast forwarded a little bit, and he saw that he died and that 's why he said, kiviti hashem only in your um, in your salvation do I hope God because Shimshon was our last hope, and after that we can only turn to God. Shimshon could have begun the period of order and religious and social stability and instead he fails terribly. And in fact, Chazal really do uh, contrast Shimshon and David in saying there are some people who have a lot of gvura. Some people use their gvura for good and some people use it for bad. Who uses it for good? The Midrash says David and Yehuda. Who uses strength for bad? Shimshon and Goliath. I think that's very... Um, indicative. Shimshon becomes like his enemy because he uses his strength pointlessly. He doesn't use it to serve the people. He doesn't use it to serve God. Unlike David, whose lion-like prowess is used to defeat those with brute, meaningless strength, Shimshon becomes a person who perhaps has brute, meaningless strength. And now, finally, I'd like to turn back to Megilat Rut, back to the matter at hand, and that is Boaz. Boaz is, of course, the ancestor of David, perhaps the one who gives David the ability to control his passions, to properly direct his passions, to exercise restraint, and therefore to bring about Binyan Beit HaMikdash. Indeed, in that, uh, in the third chapter of Root, which in my mind, is the climax, is the turning point of Migilat Root. What we have here is a very suggestive scenario. It's so suggestive, that it's supported by the language, the subject matter, ultimately the Midrash. We spoke about this, I believe, in our last um, class when we compared this third chapter of Root to the story of Yudan Tamar and the story of Lot and his daughters. There's a real sense here of, um, of, of the, the story itself building up to a point when Boaz is going to sleep with root. Root certainly seems to offer herself to Boaz in this way, and the Midrash recognizes this as well. And one of the things that I mentioned the last time is that uh, Boaz's restraint is awe-inspiring. Boaz from Shevet Yehuda, a man of great passions. Overcomes these passions in a bid to do the right thing, and here we read Brucha at he chastecha minarishon ki chayil right. All these words that he uses when he blesses her in the name of God, when he talks about her chesed, when he describes her as an eshet chayil. And the Midrash, in a particularly um, important, for our purposes, comment, compares Boaz's restraint to Shimshon's lack of restraint. Based on a Pasuk in Kohelet, Parak Zion, the Pasuk describes the dangers of interactions with, with women and in and compares Boaz and says, Tov lifneil kim ze Boaz who is good before God in the context of his relationships with women, that's Boaz. Because he said to Root, sleep here through the night. And the sinner who is trapped by women, Zeshimshon says the Midrash in Tenchuma and Parshat Nassau. Um, now, it seems to me that this third parak in root, which we spoke about last time, does indeed create a contrast with Shoftim, especially this midpoint in um, Shimshon's career in Sefer Shoftim, in Parak Zion, where we expect him to do something great, and yet instead he simply goes to this prostitute. What do we have here? What we have here is this This, uh, this turning point. Now, the turning point is described both by the 20 years and also by another phrase. It's a very unusual phrase in Tanakh. It appears, despite the fact that it seems like uh, a phrase that must appear often, it's actually a phrase that only appears in three different places. It's the phrase, Va'ihiba Chatsi Halayla. And it was in the middle of the night, what is chazi halayla? Well, it first appears in the story of Makat bechorot, and we know that in Tanakh, the images of day and night, of light and darkness, are images that really are about galut and geula, uh, distance from God and closeness to God. We know that Mitzrayim, which is a period of night, a period of alienation from God, a period of exile and galut, um, be- the, the tide turns at halayla. that's makat kharot that's when there's an in Inevitable movement towards the end. The end comes hayom in the midst of the day. That is Geula. But what happens at the midpoint of the night? That's when the day is close. That's when you can already begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's when we're on some sort of inevitable movement towards the end. That's the turning point. And the two other places where this phrase appear appears is one in the Gilat root, and that is in Pasuk Chet. And this very important Pasuk, which I mentioned in the last class, which is alayla, ha'ish v'hinei isha marglotav. And it was in the midst of the night, and the man became scared, I'm not going to translate that just yet. And behold, there is a woman who is sleeping in, by his feet. Now, the, the, one of the things I mentioned last time is that this Pasuk is missing names. It's just a man and a woman, no names. But Boaz refuses to let himself be drawn in by this neutralizing himself of his identity of his destiny which is perhaps reflected by the use of his name instead he seizes this chazi halayla moment and using again extraordinary images of day and night makes the following pronouncement of imminent ge'ula what does he say to Rudy? he says lini halayla sleep here through the night v'hayav v'boker and it will be in the morning im if you shall be redeemed It will be good that you'll be redeemed. And if you do not um, desire, or if you are not capable of being, um, or if he does not desire to redeem you, we're talking here about the Goel, then I shall surely redeem you. I swear by God, says Boaz, just sleep here through the morning. I think I mentioned last time, I'm going to just mention it briefly again, that the Zohar's reading of this Pasuk contains within it, intimations of the ultimate ge'ulah. The Zohar reads this pasuk is God's words to Am Yisrael. Sleep here through the long night of galut, and when the morning comes you will be redeemed, and if your own merits don't succeed in redeeming you, I myself will redeem you when it comes time for the morning. Just sleep through this long night of galut until we get to the morning. This is indicated, this reading is indicated by what Boaz does, b'chatzi halayla, Boaz, in the middle of the night, at the turning point, sets the stage by his incredible restraint for the building of a new kind of society, a society based on mutual respect, based on restraint, based on using one's passions to direct them towards avodat Hashem and towards um, service to the people and towards bringing the people together. This is what Boaz says, What does Shimshon do? <laughs> in the other version of the phrase, of the of the phrase in the chatsi story of Laila. Shimshon and that is of course a story where he goes down to visit a prostitute at the midpoint of his career so this chatsi halila seems to be also indicative of this midpoint of his career what does he do well we know that the police team have found out that Shimshon has come down to Aza to Aza, and they are planning all night long, what to do? How to um, how to kill him in the morning? And in the middle of the night, he gets up. He gets up in the middle of the night. He grabs hold of the gates of the city with the the lock, with the lintels, something that weighs many tons, and he carries them on his shoulders all the way up a steep incline of you know maybe twenty twenty five kilometers from Aza all the way up to Chevron. What does he do? An incredible display of strength that seems to have no particular significance for leadership of the Jewish people this is the story of Shimshon's failed career, a career which, which ends with no discernible change in the people, with no discernible change in the trajectory of Sefer Shoftim, of Jewish history Shimshon's Hatzi Halayla is a waste of his own passions and strength and I'd like to just uh, close by pointing out an interesting linguistic connection in the word which I, I did not, um, which I refused to translate previously, the word fate, We're told that in the middle of the night, the man is frightened fate, um, back in the story of Boaz. He wakes up, there's a woman lying by his, um, by his feet, and fate. It's not clear what the word fate means. The Mefarshim asked this question, what in fact does fate mean? Rashi says, v'achaz. it means that he grabbed. Kimo and Rashi compares this to Vayilfot Shimshon when Shimshon grabs hold. Or it's, Vayilpot Shimshon when Shimshon grabs hold of the two pillars that the house of uh, that the that the party that the police team are are attending at the very end of his life he you know, the, in the very famous scene with Shimshon, when he brings the house down, he grabs hold of the two pillars. The word there is used, Vayil pot Shimshon, et shnei amudei And Shimshon grabbed hold of the two central pillars, asher habait nachon that the house is being supported by them. And he leaned on them, one with his right hand, and one with his left hand. And Rashi compares these two words, and he suggests that Boaz also grabbed hold What did he grab hold of? That itself, I think, is a question. Perhaps this is he grabbed hold of himself. He restrained himself. That's not necessarily what Rashi means there, but certainly that is one possible reading. What I want to pick up on is this comparison between Boaz and Shimshon. In this final um, scene, Shimshon brings the house down. Now, I know we're accustomed to reading this uh, this scene positively to singing even some songs about it but in light of what uh, we've just seen I want to offer a different reading I think that this is a very metaphoric moment when Shimshon engages by the way in an act of personal vengeance So it's when he calls out to God and says God help me to bring down the house he says so that I can avenge myself for one of my eyes from the plishtim he's still not talking in national terms he still doesn't regard himself as a leader of Am Yisrael. But I want to talk a little bit about the metaphor of bringing the house down. This is Shimshon. Shimshon's lack of restraint, his constant um, usage or misuse of his passion, which prevents him from filling his destiny, also prevents him from enabling the building of the Beit HaMikdash. an apt metaphor for this is that he brings the house down pillars and all and perhaps this is um, is is indicated by the other house in Tanakh which has two major pillars echad Mimino ve-echad mismolo in Malachim Aleph Zion, the Beit Hamikdash is described as having these two pillars. But we're told Vayakum et uh, ha'amudim le'olam leulam haichal vayakom et ha'amud ha'yimani vayakom et ha'amud hasmali and he he he, he uh, built up the right hand and the left hand pillars. And what are these pillars? called Yachin Uvoaz. One of these pillars is Boaz, and in this way, Boaz really functions in, as the opposite of, of, of Shimshon. Shimshon, because of his misuse of his passion. Brings the house down. If you recall, our original midrash that we spoke about compared Dan and Yehuda in their ability to build the Beit Hamikdash, in their functioning somehow as um, as weaving the very fabric of the Mishkan, as well as bringing about the building of the Beit Hamikdash. Shimshon brings it all tumbling down, and Boaz becomes. Now and forever, the supporting pillar of the Beit HaMikdash, which is named after him because of that critical moment in Rut Per Gimel, where he exercises restraint for his his natural passions, and instead um, does an act which shows that he is interested in using his passions towards service of God and his people.